All right, thank you, George. Good morning, Hallows Church. It's very good to see you. Uh, my name is Jeff. I serve primarily, as some of you know, up at the Edmonds Expression of our church and have been for a few years now. Um, it's been a little while since I've been here with you in this way, in this capacity, and it's, it's the first time I've been here in this way, in this new home that the Lord has so graciously provided to our church. So I'm excited today to be with you, to open our scriptures together. If you're tuning in online, uh, welcome. If you're tuning in from West Seattle, I hear you may be joining us in this way as well. Good morning, everybody. Um, and it's been quite a week for us up here in Seattle, hasn't it? We've, uh, we made it though. <laughs> Christmas is officially behind us. 2022 is now officially upon us. And so happy new year to you. I, I truly have absolutely no idea what this next year is going to have in store for us, but uh, the Lord knows, and he is good, and he is faithful, and so let us trust him together as we go. All right, let's open our Bibles and continue this journey through the book of Luke. Today we are uh, landing in the chapter, chapter 2 of the book of Luke, verses 25 to 40. So what I'm going to do is read this passage for us. You'll see the words scrolling on your screen, I think, and then let's spend some time talking about it. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. The, his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years, seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so this is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God for that. Um, for the past month, during Advent, we've been moving through this Christmas narrative, haven't we, as it has been so beautifully uh, told by Luke. And during that time, uh, we were looking forward to the arrival of Christmas and the birth of Jesus and celebrating that. So we were uh, lighting the Advent candles each week, um, talking about the themes of hope and peace and love and joy. And these are all very warm and wonderful things to talk about, especially this time of year. But as we move past the Christmas season now and into a new year, I want to talk with you this morning about a part of the Christmas story that you probably didn't discuss over your dinner table this past, this past week. I want to talk about something of a, a darker side to the Christmas story. 
And the reason I want to go in that direction today is because this passage goes in that direction today. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus, he's been born, and Joseph and Mary have traveled uh, with their new baby up to Jerusalem to do the things they were supposed to be doing as followers of the God of Israel. In fact, the very reason they traveled up to uh, Jerusalem was to go to the temple there, and they were going to the temple there to present their baby to the Lord and dedicate Jesus to the Lord's service as they were supposed to be doing. It says in verse 39, they were doing everything according to uh, the law of the Lord. And as you heard, as they were in the temple that day doing these things, they were interrupted, weren't they, twice? right in the middle of things by two different people, two different strangers, Simeon and Anna, who had some things to say about this child Jesus. And the passage makes clear that Simeon and Anna said what they said in the temple that day because God the Holy Spirit was leading them and guiding them to say what they said that day. And so these two people, they step forward one at a time. They speak some prophetic words over the baby Jesus. Simeon, it says, picks Jesus up, lifts the baby up, and says, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. He said, this child will be a light and a glory to your people. So Simeon is further affirming that this infant named Jesus was indeed the Savior who God had promised uh, so long ago that he would send. And then this woman, Anna, she steps forward too. She has some things to say too. She begins speaking prophetic words in verse 38 about, about redemption about this redemption that Jesus would somehow be bringing into the world. And so in a way, it sounds like another Advent passage for us, right? This is, this is the warm and wonderful Jesus that uh, people love to rally around this time of year. But did you notice that right in the middle of all of these warm and wonderful words, Simeon also spoke some rather weird and startling words about Jesus in verses 34 and 35? Right after he said, yes, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation in this child. Look again at what he says in verse 34. He says, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And so what, what in the world is that? What does, what does that mean? That does not sound uh, very warm or wonderful. Surely these would have been very confusing and uh, even disturbing words for Mary and Joseph in this moment. And the truth is, this is the very first um, negative note, negative turn, right, in the Christmas story so far as it is recorded by Luke. And this is exactly what I want to explore with you today, these statements from God through Simeon to Mary and Joseph about Jesus and the mission he was coming to do. Because what God is doing here is he's really uh, peeling back uh, another layer, a new layer for Mary and for Joseph and for every reader of this passage, right? And making very clear to them and to us too that this, this Savior who had now finally arrived would not be the type of Savior that people expected. No, this Savior, this Jesus we're going to talk about today, he would be, he would be a Savior of, a, of an entirely different sort. And one thing we see made clear here in Simeon's words is that this Savior of a different sort, although he would be coming to, be, to, to do many very warm and wonderful things, he was also going to be coming 
picking a fight, so to speak. This Jesus would be a savior who would not only save, but he would be a savior who would, who would confront, a savior who would cause conflict and cause controversy in his life and in his ministry. Simeon says in verse 34 that the Savior was going to be opposed, right? Jesus would be a sign that will be opposed and that he would reveal and expose people's hearts. And people don't always like to be exposed, do they? And so let's talk about these verses. Let's talk about this a bit. Why would, why would people oppose and reject Jesus back then? And why, why would they and why do they still oppose and reject him today, 2,000 years later? And, and practically speaking, what does that mean for us as we, as we begin into another new year in 2022? So Jesus... The truth is, was opposed and, and is opposed for many different reasons. But for the most part, Jesus was and is opposed because of the things that he said, the words that he, he spoke, right? His words and his teachings rubbed many people the wrong way. You see, Jesus showed up right from the get-go in his public ministry confronting people, confronting the worldviews of the people that he came across, he was continually confronting and challenging the beliefs that people had about God and about, about themselves and about the kingdom of God. And he did all of these things so often in the most mysterious and subversive of ways. Nobody else ever said the sorts of things that, that Jesus said. Every other founder of every other major religion said basically something like this. They said, I have heard from God and I can tell you the way to God. Let me show you. Let me show you the way. Jesus said something completely different. He did not say, I'm here to tell you the way. He did not, he did not say, I'm here to show you the way. No, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth and I am the life. And very importantly, notice something he didn't say. He didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I am a truth. He said, I am the way and I am the truth. And then right after saying those words, Jesus then said something else that people rejected then and that people still very much reject today. He said, no one comes to the Father. Nobody comes to God except through me, he says, nobody. And so Jesus doesn't show up saying, I've heard from God, let me show you how to find him. He shows up saying, I am God, and I've, I've come to find you. And I've come to challenge and reveal your understanding of me. Nobody ever made claims like Jesus made. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And so Jesus teaches quite clearly in the Bible, the Bible as a whole does too, that he is the one way. He is the only way. There is no other way to get to God than through him. Now, the culture in Jerusalem in the first century, they did not like those words. They did not like that concept. And, and that brought Jesus into some degree of conflict. And the early Christians too, uh, with both the Roman gov government and with other groups in that culture, and it brings us into some conflict too, doesn't it? In our culture too, people don't like those words. Those words make people uncomfortable today too. They make some people uh, quite angry. 
No other name, no other way, no other religion by which you must be saved. That's, that's very narrow. That's very ignorant. That's repugnant. That's hurtful and hateful. I oppose that. I, I reject that, many will say. Literally billions of people celebrated Christmas last week. They were happy to have the time off of work to share meals with family and friends, to give and receive many gifts. But friends, let's be honest here. The vast majority of those billions of people last week, they may have been celebrating Christmas, but they were not celebrating Christ, not this Christ that we're talking about. Our culture prefers the position that there are many ways, many names that can be called upon, and Jesus is just one of those names. Religious tolerance is a view held up by many in our culture as one of the highest possible virtues for us as a society. They say that we will never have real peace or real progress without it. And the basic premise is this, all religions are basically the same. No one religion is more true or more valid than another. All religions are fundamentally equal. They are fundamentally valid pathways to God. And there are many diverse voices sounding this same sentiment all around us in our culture. A prominent Jewish writer and thinker, Rabbi Shmuley Botek, says this. He says, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism, he says. Mahatma Gandhi, who believed in the religion of Hinduism, said it this way. He said, my position is that all the great religions are fundamentally equal. And the spiritual giant of our day, Oprah Winfrey, and I say that only half joking. After all, Ricky Bobby cried out to her in his moment of need, and many others do too. Oprah has many followers. She has millions of followers. And here's what she says to her followers. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, she says, there are many diverse paths leading to God. And so Jesus is the one way, the only way. You can't say that. Don't you dare say that. You can believe in Jesus. That's fine. Just don't say he's the one way or the, the only way or a better way. But friends, is that even possible? Can it even be true that all religions are fundamentally the same? Think about it. If we're going to be intellectually honest here, logically speaking, can all religions really be equally valid or equally true? Isn't it true that the claims of every major religion are mutually exclusive one to the other? Judaism says that Jesus was not the Messiah. Christianity says Jesus is the Messiah. They can't, they can't both be right, can they? Hinduism says that God has incarnated himself hundreds of thousands of times. Christianity says that one time, uniquely and unrepeatably, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Can they both, can they both be right? The final words of Buddha were strive unceasingly. And the final words of Jesus were, it is finished. Are they both right? Islam says heaven is gained as a result of your good works outweighing your bad works. Christianity says your good works could never possibly outweigh your bad works, and that is the reason for the cross 
of Christ to pay for the forgiveness of your, of your sins. And it sure seems to me like they can't both be right. You can say that Jesus was wrong or you can say that he's right, but what you can't say is that, is that he's the same as all the others. Not if you're listening seriously to what he is saying. And if Jesus is right, and if what Jesus says is true, then doesn't he have to be superior to all the rest? Now, I do want to be clear about something. It is possible, of course, to believe that Jesus, what Jesus says and to believe that he is the one way and the only way and still be tolerant of other people and their beliefs, despite what some will say. Tolerance does not mean affirming or approving positions that you don't agree with. Tolerance is about treating those who hold those positions that are not your own with love and respect and humility in spite of those differences you may have with them. And we can and should do that and be that at every turn with everybody, no matter who they are or what they believe. But in any case, Jesus, he was opposed and is opposed and will be opposed because of his, the nature of his claims, really. And you see the first warning from Luke about it here. Simeon says to Mary and Joseph, he says, he says, watch out, it's coming. There will be confrontation and conflict. There will be opposition because this Savior is going to be a Savior of a different sort. And just as Jesus was opposed, he himself reminds us that uh, we will be too because of him. John chapter 15, verse 18 says, if the, this is Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And so friends, as we start this new year, I want to ask you to consider whether there's any opposition in your life because of Jesus. I think there is a case to be made here that if we are really following Jesus, if we're really listening to him and living for him, we should expect resistance and rejection and even hatred at one level or another. And so what does that pushback look like in your life right now because of Jesus? Is it there? Does it exist? And if it's not there, if it doesn't exist, what does that mean? Is that a problem? Opposition to Jesus can take many forms. It looks different for people in some parts of the world than it does in others. In many parts of the world right now and all across history, it takes and has taken extreme forms. Christians in various parts of the world right now are being imprisoned and tortured and raped and killed. Why? Because they have aligned themselves with Jesus. In our part of the world, opposition to Jesus takes the form not so much of physical opposition or physical persecution as much as psychological opposition or social opposition, sometimes very subtly so, but other times not. There are parts of our Bibles that are coming under increasing attack in our culture as dangerous and bigoted as, as hate speech even. And I don't think it will be getting any better anytime soon. 
And so there are some challenges for us, some challenging implications and consequences for us because of what we believe about Jesus in the city of Seattle in the year 2022. You and I, we live in a place where we probably won't be asked to make a life or death decision for Jesus like many others have in many other places. More likely in our context, what Jesus is going to be asking of you is is not whether you're willing to, to die for him, but whether you're willing to be misunderstood or mischaracterized or mislabeled because of him. More likely in our context, what Jesus is going to be asking of you is whether you're willing to be caricatured or mocked or ridiculed because of him. Whether you're willing to be seen by others, even others you may care very much about, as ignorant and and, and intolerant, as sexist or homophobic, as a desperate person chasing a desperate fairy tale. I don't like any of those descriptions. I don't want those labels. I'd rather avoid being called any and all of those things. But just as Jesus and the Bible are seen in those ways by some people around us, so too will we by association. And that needs to be okay. And so are you willing to do that, to be seen in those ways by others, to be misunderstood and mischaracterized for Jesus' sake this new year humbly, respectfully, and even even lovingly. I hope and pray that you are, I hope and pray that we are together as his people and as his church. So we've talked about how this passage, these prophetic words in verses 34 and 35 represent um, God revealing how Jesus would be a savior of a different sort, a savior who confronts And a Savior who, because he confronts, is a Savior who would be opposed and rejected. But we also see here in Simeon's words that this Savior of a different sort would also be a Savior who who convicts. And here's what I mean by that. To convict someone means what? It means to declare them guilty. To convict someone means to declare them to be guilty of a crime, a, a punishable offense. And who is it that usually convicts people and declares people guilty? It's a judge who does that, right? In verse 30, Simeon looks at Jesus and says to the Lord, I have seen your salvation. And it is quite clear in this passage and others leading up to it that Jesus would somehow be bringing this salvation into the world and making, making everything right that had gone so terribly wrong in this world and, and in the human heart. But it also seems clear from Simeon's words in verse 34 in particular that not not everyone would be receiving or accepting this salvation. Remember in verse 34, Simeon says to Mary, this child, this Jesus is is destined to cause cause some people to rise and some people to fall. And so what does that mean? Most commentators believe these words about rising and falling are referring back to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, speaking about the promised Messiah being a stone, a stone who many would trip and stumble and fall over. Listen to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. It says, he will be a sanctuary 
But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. The Apostle Paul and some other New Testament writers would also point back to these same words from Isaiah, and they would apply them to Jesus. One example of that is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. It says, For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over, Peter says. And so what you begin to see here as you take this in and as you think this through is that this Jesus would be coming in the world not only as one who would save people, but also as one who would divide people and separate people. Some would be running to him and rising with him in salvation, while others, it seems, would be tripping and falling over him and under him. These words from Simeon are believed by most to be alluding to the divine judgment of God and the coming reality of Jesus as judge. Now, you may know the New Testament confirms in many places that Jesus is judge and a judgment day is coming. In John chapter 5, verse 22, it says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Acts chapter 10, verse 42, we're told there that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, we're told that God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, referring to Jesus. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, needless to say, God's judgment and God's wrath are not the most popular attributes of God that people like to think about or talk about. You go into Barnes and Noble or you get on Amazon and you see hundreds of different books on religion and spirituality and you see all sorts of titles talking about the human soul, right? Chicken soup for the soul, care for the soul. But what you don't really ever find there is a bestseller called Judgment Day for the soul. <laughs> the truth is nobody wants to think about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. In our culture today, in fact, the idea of a God of judgment and a God of wrath is another of Christianity's most offensive doctrines, one that is opposed and rejected by many. Many say that such a concept is primitive at best and dangerous uh, at worst. Even inside many churches, right, many Christian churches, a certain pressure is felt to minimize this doctrine or to apologize for it or to get rid of it altogether, which some have done and which Others continue to do. But really, the only way that you can do that, the only way you can possibly minimize or dismiss the doctrine of divine judgment is really by picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you're going to take seriously and which parts you're not. Because divine judgment is talked about much in the Old Testament. It's talked about much in the New Testament. 
And the one person in the Bible who talks about it more than anyone else is, in fact, Jesus. And so we need to listen humbly and, and soberly and learn from him about these things, lest we find ourselves following not the Jesus of the Bible, but a, a Jesus of our own construction and our own imagination. But friends, I know this can be very challenging for us. To be sure, one of the most common objections to Christianity and to the God of the Bible is how can a God of love and grace also be a God of, of wrath and, and judgment? Aren't those incompatible? Aren't those irreconcilable attributes? Don't they contradict one another? There's a Christian theologian who was born and raised in the former uh, Yugoslavia. His name is Miroslav Volf. And he's actually a professor at Yale University now where he is the founder and director of something called the Center for Faith and Culture. And for much of Wolf's life, he opposed and objected to the God of the Bible on these very grounds. He used to reject the concept of God's wrath and judgment because to him the idea of an angry God was barbaric, it was unworthy and unbecoming of a, a God of love. And so as he thought this through, he reasoned that if God is loving and perfect and powerful, surely he would, would not need to judge anyone. Surely he could forgive and accept everyone. So Wolf pushed back. He rejected what the Bible says about God's judgment and God's wrath. But then something happened with Wolf that changed how he thought about all of this. You see, his country, it was drawn into a very violent and very protracted civil war, a war that uh, divided and devastated that country and its people for many, many years. In one of Wolf's books called Free of Charge, listen to what he says about his experience and about how it changed his view on this. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a result of the war in former, the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over three, three million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And he says, when I thought deeply on this, I could not imagine God not being angry at what was happening. Or when I think about the genocide in Rwanda where 800,000 people were hacked to death in the span of only 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with all of those acts of evil and injustice and with those who were committing them? He says, I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of a God of wrath, but, when I, but I came to realize that in the face of the atrocities of this world, that the far greater indecency would be a God who did not care and who was not wrathful at the sight of such things, Wolf says. Another thing about this, if you're one who may struggle to reconcile the love of God and the wrath of God, are you really thinking carefully and honestly about the very nature of, of love itself? Isn't it true that anyone who loves another person is at times filled with anger and wrath, not in spite of their love, but because of it? 
Anybody in this room who's ever loved somebody and seen that person destroying himself or herself surely understands something about this. You don't sit back and say, oh, well, you don't look the other way. You're not indifferent. No, you get upset, right? You get angry because, because of who they are to you, because you love them and you want, you want what's best for them. God's love and God's wrath, in fact, they do not conflict with one another. They do not contradict one another. They actually establish one another. The Bible tells us quite clearly that God's wrath toward human sin and evil is grounded in and flows from his love for those whom he has created. God looks at the world and sees the violence, the hatred, the trafficking of innocent children. He sees the terrorism and, and the wars, the genocide, and his wrath is rightly provoked, not as some sort of impulsive outburst of emotion, but as a just response, as a, as a settled opposition to the cancer that is sin and Satan and death, ravaging those whom he loves. N.T. Wright said it like this. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise, Wright says. But, but our God is indeed uh, good and loving, and it, it is actually because he is good and loving that he is also a God who hates and who judges and who will bring Final retro, bring retribution in a, a full and final sense. Now, it is at this point that another objection sometimes arises in all of this. Many will say that to believe in a God of wrath and retribution is dangerous and detrimental to and for our society. Some suggest that if, if you believe in a God who judges and condemns those who wrong him, you may think it perfectly justified to do some of the very same things to those who wrong you or those who don't believe what you believe. But Wolf would go on in one of his books to take on that objection and to really dismantle that objection in a, in a very interesting way. He would say that when the God of the Bible is rightly understood and when the doctrine of divine judgment is rightly understood, it leads not to aggression or violence towards others. He, he argues that actually the opposite is true. This Wolf, who witnessed unspeakable violence in his home country, says that for him, the only means of prohibiting violent retaliation against those who have done great evil is to believe that retribution is legitimate only when it comes from God. He says this, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence towards others requires a belief in divine justice and vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, he says, but imagine knowing people as I do, whose cities and villages have been plundered, have been burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. What do you say to them that they should not retaliate? On what basis? Why would they listen to that? What will possibly keep them from retaliating? 
He goes on, if I don't believe there is a God who will eventually put all things right and deal with the violence and injustice of this world, he says, I will take up the sword and do it myself. And as I do that, I will be sucked into an endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I'm sure that there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly, he says, do I have the power to refrain from seeking vengeance for myself when I am wronged. And so you see what he's saying. He's saying it's not the belief in a God of judgment that is dangerous to society. He's saying it's actually the, actually the lack of belief in a God of judgment that secretly nourishes the violence and the injustice that has ravaged the human race across all of its history. Okay, we've seen how this passage points us to a savior of a different sort, a savior who confronts and a savior who convicts. But we also get a glimpse that this savior of a different sort would also be a savior who, who consoles in verse 25, we're told that Simeon was a righteous and devout man who was looking forward. He was, he was looking forward to something, and what he was looking forward to was, it says, consolation, for consolation for God's people. And, and God, in this moment, through Simeon, was affirming that Jesus would be that, comp, that consolation. Now, to console someone means to calm them, to comfort them. It means... To console someone means to bring relief to someone who finds themselves, themselves in, a, in a desperate or difficult situation. And one of the clearest messages that Jesus confronts people with in the gospel is that every person on this planet finds themselves in a very desperate situation that they need relief and, and rescue from. And that's really the fundamental offense of the gospel, and it always has been, and that is that you need to be saved, but you can't save yourself, right? You stand guilty before God because you fall short. You're a, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and there is no other name under heaven but Jesus that can do anything about that for you. But, but thanks be to God that he has. It is important for us to understand as we talk about this that Jesus is judge as we talked about and that judgment day is coming. But, but when Jesus came the first time, he did not come as judge, did he? He did not come to bring judgment against, against us. No, he came for another reason that we see uh, alluded to in John chapter 3, verse 17. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world to save the world through him. And this is the salvation Simeon is speaking of. And in verse 30, he understood that Jesus was coming into the world the first time to save the world. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, Lord, in this, in this child. But nevertheless, even though Jesus did not come bringing judgment when he came the first time, there is a judgment that took place, right, when Jesus came the first time? And there is a very real sense in which we are right now living in between two judgments that the Bible speaks about, and they both involve Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom before, but if you have, it's, it's hard not to be a little bit intimidated by the judge, right? The ju judge never really sits at a desk down at the, the level of the defendant. He's never kind of looking you eye to eye. He's not sitting at eye level with you. No, the judge is always seated up high on the bench looking down at the defendant. The defendant is down low looking up at the judge. 
And it's really no different with Jesus. He was seated on high, looking down, looking down at the mess we had made of this world and of our lives, looking down at our self-centered and self-serving hearts. And he could have rightly and justly sentenced every one of us to what we deserve, which is separation from him forever. But this judge of ours, this Jesus, he didn't stay on high looking down. He did not send down a final verdict against us from afar. No, this judge, he shocks everyone. This judge, he stepped down from the bench and moved toward us, eye to eye with us. He became, he became one of us. And in the most astonishing act of all human history, when the judge stepped down from the bench the first time, he, he came down not to bring judgment against us, but rather to take on our judgment for us. The judge, in fact, came down to be judged in our place for our sins so that you and I, by faith, would never have to be. And you see down in verse 38 of this passage something about how this would happen, how Jesus would do this. It says Anna, this woman Anna, was looking forward to something too, just like Simeon. It says she was looking forward to and speaking about redemption, redemption of God's people that Jesus uh, was going to bring. And that word redemption in the Greek is derived from the very same word that means, means ransom, to ransom someone, to make a payment. That means to make a payment so that, so that what? So that a captive could go free to make a payment so that a guilty prisoner could avoid what they had coming to them. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we're told that in fact Jesus came into the world the first time, get this, to give his life as what? As a ransom, as a payment for many. So friends, if you're a Christian, it's because you've been purchased at a very, very high cost. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 tells us more about that. It says, uh, says it this way, that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption, that same word redemption. We've been ransomed. And so what was the payment for us? It tells us this ransom was paid with, with blood, with Jesus' blood through his death on a cross. For what? It says for the forgiveness of our sin. Why? Why would he do this? It says according to the riches of his grace. The judge stepped down and paid the penalty we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to stay up high above you, looking down on you. He says, I'm coming down there with you to make a way, a way for you. And as a result, once you uh, trust in that, once you put your faith in this good news, your judgment, your judgment is in the past. The trial is over. The verdict is in. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, uh, I tell you, anyone who hears my words and believes them, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, and get this, will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So, Christian, your judgment is behind you. Why? Because the judge was judged for you. Christianity is utterly unique in this respect. It diverges from every other religion or spirituality that tries to tell people how they might get right with God. Every other system says it's up to you and what you do, but Christianity says it's up to Jesus and what he, what he already did. 
And there are, these are um, indeed incredible truths, but, but do they really make any difference for you and I, practically speaking, uh, as we begin another new year together? I think they do. I believe they do. I think they should. Because the truth is there's a present tense reality in all this as we live in between these two judgments. And if we're thinking rightly about this, I think we, we should really be freed, shouldn't we, from the need to make ourselves the judge and jury over the people around us. We should be freed, shouldn't we, from the need to set everyone straight who disagrees with us or disrespects us or offends us or even wrongs us greatly. Why? Because we trust that in the end, on the final day, God will set Set right, every wrong, every injustice will be addressed, every evil will be judged and paid for. In fact, God says this quite clearly. He says, don't do any of this yourself. He says, leave this to me. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, it says this. It says, friends, do not, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And if you leave that to him, if you trust that he will deal with everything, it, it should enable us to be gentle people and forgiving people because there's no need for us to pick up the sword. There's no need to get sucked into this endless cycle of anger and retaliation that infects the world around us. Instead, you can leave it to him. You can trust him that every wrong in the universe, every evil, every injustice will ultimately be paid for either by Christ when he died on the cross for those who believe or at the coming judgment day for those who don't. Also, living in between these two judgments should also make us a humble people and a, a hopeful people too. It should make you humble because you know you deserve to be judged, but you weren't. Your judgment is behind you and it was absorbed for you. And so you don't feel superior to anybody, or at least you shouldn't. You know that every person on this planet shares a common condition in sin and a common need to be ransomed by the gospel. And it should make you hopeful too, because no matter what kind of setback you may be facing right now, no matter what type of injustice you may be experiencing, it's not... It's not ultimate, right? It's not the final word. It's, it's only one battle in a war that has already been won. And so we should have a certain consolation that characterizes us as followers of Jesus, a certain calm and comfort, a certain hope because, because of those things and because we know how the story ends. And as the story ends, we're told in a way that a new story begins together in fellowship with Jesus and with one another forever. A story where everything that is wrong in this life and with this life is no more. And where all things, not some things, all things we're told will be made new. So friends, what a savior of a different sort we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your uh, presence and your provision in our lives. We love you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your scriptures. 
Thank you that they are living and active. Thank you that they confront us in the ways that we need. Thank you that they are profitable for us, even the difficult passages. Would they be profitable for us today as we consider what we've discussed, as we consider what Jesus did and how he did it? Jesus, thank you for stepping down and being judged in our place for our sins so we could live in light of a beautiful future that we anticipate. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.